0: Hello, friends. I'm Ashish Dabari, founder and CEO of AXMIZE. And guess what? We are nearing the 50th episode of our podcast. Right. I did survive that long, and I'm happy to know that a lot of you persevered and kept listening to our podcast. So I have a very special treat for you today. I have invited one of the biggest names in computer science and formal methods, and I have been running after him for six months to actually get some time. And you will know why, because he, he's got his fingers in many pies. His name is Moshe Wardy. He's a university professor, Karen Ostrom George, distinguished service professor in computational engineering at Rice University. He's leading an initiative in technology, culture, and society. Yes, I did I say he was also one of the leading names in automated reasoning? Yes, and a branch of artificial intelligence uh, with broad applications to computer science. His interests are in machine learning, database theory, computational complexity theory, knowledge in multi-agent systems, computer-aided verification, and he also happens to be a teacher. And he's also a faculty scholar at the Baker Institute for Public Policy at Rice University. Moshe, shalom. Shalom, shalom. How are you? And thank you very much for coming and talking to us. My pleasure. So Moshe, it's very difficult, you know, to start a conversation with someone like you because I don't know where to start. So let me ask you,
1: how did you end up in computer science? Um, You know, certain things in life happen and then yourself, you you look later and say, how did it happen? Um, So when I grew up, I've, the computers were just not something you talked about. You didn't know about. And then I'm uh, I finished high school a bit a bit young. I was 16 when I finished high school, and I see an advertisement in the paper. Tel Aviv University was going to run a two week course on computer programming. Now I'm trying to reconstruct what attracted me to this, and I I cannot because I mean. At the time, we're talking about uh, in 1970. Right. Who who knew about computers then? But right. I was intrigued. And That's I said, true. okay, I went to my father and I went to sign up for that course. Um, you know, the currency then has changed, so I have no idea even how much it was. <laughs> how how much it cost today. It was, I think, 50 lirot, which was the currency at the time. But I have no idea what it means now. I don't know if it's a lot of money or little money. But then anyway, my father said, yes, of course. And I had relatives in Tel Aviv and I could uh, stay with them. So I don't have to, because I would have to take the bus every day. So I took this two-week course and it was about uh, computing programming in Fortran. Wow, yeah. Fortran was it, the thing. And it was Fortran and it was, you know, now I tell people it, it's like, uh, you know, we're talking about the, the dark ages. Homo Neanderthal programming kind of thing, <laughs> you know. You 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 had to use punch cards, and you didn't get to touch the key punch machine because you wouldn't let students key punch then So there was something called coding sheets, okay. and you had to write. These are sheets with basically lines. Every line was divided into eighty eighty squares. So you had to write them carefully, and you wrote your, your program, and they they uh, key punched the, they punched the cards, and it went. And the next day you got the output, and the, the, the key punch operator made a typo <laughs> and you went through this, fixing the typos. And then finally your program, program ran. And of course you had logic errors and your program didn't run correctly. So it took like a, like a, I think we ended up running one, it took two weeks to run a, a program. that didn't do nothing too sophisticated, but I was hooked. I was hooked. I mean, wow. I just, programming was so much fun that I was hooked on computer science. Now at the time, Computer science was not a mature, I mean, it just started. So the, when I went to college, they only had a minor in computer science. You couldn't even major in computer science. So I majored in physics with a minor in computer science. Right. I even knew that. Yeah. And, and so I had a, my bachelor was my degree. My main thing was actually is I was trained as a physicist. And then after i I graduated from college then I had to do my military service, when I came back four years later and i had to i was determined to go to graduate school, then it was clear it was going to be computer science okay i mean i was so that's how really I got full time in computer science only only after that and i when I came back to to uh graduate school after four years completely away from academia, all that I could do at the time. I would buy manuals of programming languages and just read the manuals cover to cover, you know, with no running anything. I would learn the programming languages completely theoretically, so to speak, without writing a single program. And when I came back for between 74 and seven, I came back in 78, um, and I got my first programming job, I looked for a key punch machine. Right. And I go all over the place. I was the Weizmann Institute and I go all over the place. And finally, in some dark corner, I find a key punch machine. So finally, I can get to punch my cards. And I go there and I start punching cards. And somebody sees and asks me, "What are you doing?" And I said, "I have a program to run. I'm punching cards." And the guy looked at me as if I just uh, I just uh, came back from uh, back to the past, you know. <laughs> to the, he said. Nobody, this, is, this machine is, a, is just a, an antique. Nobody keeps punch machine anymore. I said, how do you submit jobs? We have terminals. Oh, really? <laughs> what is a terminal? Wow. <laughs> so that's just the
0: fun of computer science that it has moved on so fast.
1: That and within a space. in four years, <laughs> everything changed. In particular, remember, 70 between, when I graduated, nobody mentioned microprocessors. And mm. I come back, everybody's talking about microprocessors. <laughs> everybody's talking about NP completeness. I said, wow, it's like like I felt like a Rip Van Winkle, as if I've been asleep for, it only was four years. Yeah, yeah. I felt that I've been asleep
0: for 70 years. And this makes so much sense because the 1979 paper of NP complete was probably around the same time as, as I... Thing you're mentioning the
1: book in fact the book the guy in johnson book came up in 79 right okay yeah i mean the, the NP completeness really started early 70s i could have heard about his undergraduate student but the paper just came out yeah so so it really took a while for it to become popularized and people to start uh, i think the first paper was 71 the second was maybe 73 74 so it took a few years before everybody was doing NP completeness so it was just completely new. And I, I remember, I thought, so, well, this must be a scary concept. I, I mean, this is a, it just sounds np completeness. It sounded a very fancy, fancy concept. So, so, so you did your graduate education in Israel. And yes. Then you yeah.
0: moved on to the U.S. for your master's and PhD. Was that no, what? I did all
1: my grad education in Israel as well. I got I, my PhD in Israel. Okay. so and all the way. I came, I came to the U.S. only to do a postdoc. That's wow. where I, yeah, yeah. Wow.
0: And which year was that? When you did your first talk?
1: I came to the U.S. in the fall of 1981. Wow. So this fall, it will be the 40th anniversary.
0: Wow. Rest has to say, is history, hey? Yeah, (laughs) time flies. Time flies when you're having fun, they say. Indeed. So, Moshe, I know you're busy with so many different topics, and I was looking around and actually found time to research a bit more on what is keeping you busy these days? And I thought the first thing I want to talk to you about is logic and problem solving. So, you know, widely accepted as a calculus of computer science. Um, I think, in my view, it is not just the basis for computational algorithms providing automatic solutions, but also in providing a framework where we can build robust hardware, software, and full systems Um so we use this all the time in the specification of systems and discovering validation problems and, of course, in verification. Um, but I also hear and I have also had interest in applications of formal in-law. So looking at from where you are looking at this, what is your perspective on all of the different applications of logic and formal methods that you see How can we use these to solve all sorts of complex real world problems?
1: So, there is a well known professor of software engineering at uh, MIT called Daniel Jackson. Mm -hmm. He's done alloy, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. He's Software software engineering slash formal. His father was a more uh, kind of practical software engineer. And he's, I think, Michael Jackson. Yeah. And he has a phrase that I think very, very important phrase that I don't think it's been enough internalized by in, in computing description is, is our business uh-huh. well, is description nice. is our business <laughs> because, because the key essence of, of computer science is computer will solve the problem,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but what, what are they going to solve? Well, we need to tell them what to do. Correct. And, and in fact, we know that, that, that computers speak in a in a very low level language okay really they speak in binary okay well we don't do very well in binary there was a lesson it took a long time ago <laughs> and in fact i heard stories about this so i read once an account by one of von Neumann's students and i forgot his name now but he's the guy that invented the assembler
0: mm-hmm.
1: and really he said you know what if what if we have Mnemonic for the commands. You mm-hmm. can write add instead of writing something in, in hexadecimal. Remember, it used to be that octal was a high level language. Correct, correct. You didn't correct. have to write bits anymore. Correct. correct and correct. IBM lifted it to hexadecimal <laughs> in high level language. And the student, the student said, you know what? What if we can write add and load and things like that? And so, and he wrote, you know, the first assembler was just very simple translation from between mnemonic and, and opcodes. And he was very proud, and he went and told von Neumann about this. Mm-hmm. And von Neumann looked at him sternly and he said, you're wasting precious computer time on clerical tasks that humans, humans can do. And so von Neumann said, this is a trivial task. Why should we waste precious computer stuff to do that? Okay. So the less, and von Neumann, of course, could do multiply eight-digit number in his head. So he did not appreciate why it's difficult for, for people to do that. And this, this account I read, the next anecdote I heard from John Bacchus. And I was in an amazing position to be John Bacchus' manager.
0: Oh, wow. The guy who invented so, Fortran,
1: right? This was this was at IBM.
0: Yeah.
1: And he, he was an IBM fellow, and it means an IBM fellow reported directly to Lab Director. But he also had a group called uh, uh, for he wanted to develop functional languages. I mean, he was really an amazing person. He's doing a world. Lecture, he got a Turing Award for Fortran. But his Turing Award talk was how we need to move to, to, to functional languages. Wow. And he tried to develop a, a, a system. It was called FL, mm-hmm. a programming language that would be as fast as Fortran. Right. That was the goal, to be as fast as Fortran. And I was his manager in his capacity as group manager. And he told me a story how when they were developing Fortran at IBM in the early 50s, Von Neumann came to visit them. And Phenomenal at the time was like God. I mean, Phenomenal was the, the last. We don't have anyone today who is like the people who say, oh, he's the top mathematician in the world. We have brilliant mathematicians, you know, but we don't have anyone. People said, this person is the top mathematician. Mathematics is just too big and too broad to have one person who said the king of mathematics. But Phenomenal was the last one. And so Phenomenal came to visit and they will show him Fortran. And he sits there with a stone face, looks completely un- un- underwhelmed. <laughs> and finally he said, why are you doing this? And they start stammering. Well, you know, programming is difficult. You know, we try to develop high-level languages. And he said, nonsense. If it's difficult, just give it to a graduate student. Wow. <laughs> this was his, his solution. Oh, man. But, but so Phenomen didn't get it. But, but programming is hard. And partly what's hard about it, you have to be very, you know, the computer is your savant. You know, there's no, it doesn't know what you're thinking. It only knows what you told the, the computer. And we all, you know, you made an error, it's not going to fix your error. Okay. So it, it's, oh, you say, you know, when I talk to you and I said something, you say, oh, I know you meant that. The computer is not going to fix this. Okay? No semantics, only syntax. <laughs> so so that's why description is so important in the field of computing because we have to write precisely what we want. And this is really, if you look at one of the, you know, we can say now computer is, you know, if you go back to starting 76, we just celebrated this year, the 75th anniversary of, uh, of the ENIAC. So you mm-hmm. I don't know where you trace the birth of computer science, but maybe the ENIAC is a good point. Mm-hmm. So we are now 75 years old. And the constant theme that goes through the seventy five years is description is our business. How can we write things so they are they have they are precise but they're also clear and and it's clear we can communicate about them. It makes sense for us to talk we need to find something that is close to human language
0: so are you saying but, are you saying that anything that we can describe precisely semantically we can expect the computers to then solve those problems
1: that's what we want i mean out sort of that there was a, an idea that had some successes and some failures mm-hmm. and which is what we call declarative programming yes, right we yes. shouldn't tell the computer add this and subtract that to say here's the problem i want you to solve figure it out mm-hmm. and there have been some great successes i mean okay. some of the, the if you think about it mm-hmm. the hardware industry mm-hmm compiler, they're called logic synthesis tools, mm-hmm. but but they are compilers, Correct. right? They're the analog of with the compiler is a great success. Mm-hmm. We would not be able to build the system we are building today mm-hmm. if we had to write everything in a low-level language. Correct. And right. part of part of the, you know, when you talk about your software industry, they keep talking about what they call program programmer productivity. Programmer mm-hmm. productivity is Correct. the matter. Programmer productivity. Correct. And we all the time try to lift the level of abstraction. Mm-hmm try to lift the level of abstraction.
0: So, Moshe, this is fascinating because this, this fits in right into um, into what I was going to ask you. So, you know, formal methods, and a lot of us in the industry use property specification languages, um, we call them system verilog log assertions and PSL, but you and I both know where they came from, right? And one of them which has been quite widely studied, two of them, CTL and LTL. Um, CTL not as popular in in modern specifications in hardware. And you gave a talk at IT Bombay about the rise and fall of LTL. So I got really intrigued about that. I said, why wouldn't Moshe say the fall of LTL? I I only saw this rising and rising. So tell me what were your thoughts
1: in in that seminar? So... um I mean, there are two kind of different debates here. One of the linear type is branching time versus bunching time. And that debate has pretty much, I think, concluded. People realize that people think about traces. I mean, all the validation industry is based on traces and suddenly to talk about trees. Mm. Um, uh, not very easy to Very, very yeah. Not very intuitive. Mm. And Ed Clark and I had this kind of raging debate for a few years. And then in, I think after they received the, after Clark, Uh, Emerson and Sifakis received the Turing Award, Mm. they had to write a a joint article because it was a joint Turing Award. They had to write a joint article for CSCM, the Turing Award Lecture.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And that was not easy to get the three of them to write a coherent article. There were three fiercely independent thinking individuals. It was not very easy to put it together. And one of the issues is you didn't want everybody writing three pages and somehow we stitch them together. It has to be some something coherent. And one of the issues was at what level of language to discuss it. And that debate emerged between them. And Ed Clark wrote an email that I only shared with the other people after he passed away last December, sure, which is sure. you know, our two pioneers, two of our pioneers, Ed Clark and passed away in uh, in December, and then Bob Corson passed away just about a couple of months ago. Oh, I
0: missed
1: Bob Cushion's departure. Oh, Yeah, right. Bob Cushion also passed away just in a couple also of months ago. Yeah. Ed Clark was in December. And and only after Ed Clark passed away, I said, okay, now I can share this email publicly where he said, I no longer believe in branching time. Wow, he said that? He said that. Wow. And, and the reason is that the, the reason the CTL at the beginning actually was so... Convenient to implementation is because you implement it by essentially by iterating fixed points. Uh-huh. Yeah, and so it's very also you know eventually p. Oh well, it's very clear how you do it. You start from p and you do backward uh, backward reachability. Okay, and so it it was very easy to implement in some sense. And linear time, it was much more difficult to implement. Okay, it's much more challenging to implement. But I think what uh, actually. Uh, the thing that changed his mind was like bounded model checking. The fact that you can take, just say, I'm looking for a bounded error trace and it's bounded, and I can just say, okay, it'll give me a longer trace, a longer trace. It's just very clear, a longer, longer trace. Uh, then, counter counterexample based abstraction refinement. You have an error trace, you check it. If it's not the right thing, you fix your obstruction. It just became to him very clearly over the three. The linear time and Mm -hmm. he was open-minded enough to say i no longer believe in branching time after we had a raging debate for for so for several years so um
0: so why would you say
1: there was a fall of ltl so the the reason there is a fall of ltl so this was one one debate and i say in that sense ltl won yeah but it turned out that uh, LTL was not, was not expressive enough. Yeah. And that became, that became clear when we started the, the, the development of, it was what became first 4-spec at Intel, which later got folded into into PSL mm-hmm. and later influenced the design of SVA. Mm-hmm. And partly there I was talking to, by, at the beginning when I said we want a language, I said, just use LTL. And And the people at Intel told me, LTL is not expressive enough. Okay. Yeah, I can understand. And and the, fu- yeah. and the funny thing is that as an academic, I thought expressiveness is a is a, is a theoretical issue. Who cares about expressiveness? <laughs> Point, Pointy head theoretician care about expressiveness. They said, no. Here is something we want to say. Here's a property we want mm-hmm. to say. Mm-hmm. Show us how we can do it in LTL. Mm-hmm. And we know we understand today that LTL correspond to first order logic, mm-hmm. and PSL for example correspond to monadic second order logic. There is a gap in expressiveness. this but it's not a theoretical issue; it's a usability issue. It's a user interface issue. I have a verification engineer, and a verification engineer wants to say the following: Okay, the clock ticks every odd cycle. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And you cannot say it in first-order logic.
0: Yeah, I mean, I can express it, but I'll have to use some glue code to be able to say this. I can't directly. Well, express essentially, it. The, your glue <laughs>
1: code is what lifted it Correct. to the next to the Correct. next level. Correct. And and that people that motivated, I mean, the whole project of, of that led to again this development of different languages was motivated by we need to say certain things and we cannot say them in, in LTL. Hmm. And so from that point of view, LTL is a beautiful, nice language. You know, you mm. have a language essentially with mm. you really need Boolean logic and you need to add just next and until mm. and everything mm. else is expressible. So mm. this is just a beautiful language. And I can give you the semantics in in, in, in on on one slide, yes, but it's not expressive enough. And what we learned is from, from the industry. So I've been, you know, I said it. it's still, I write papers about LTL because it's just so easy to do it. It's like the, the mm-hmm. hydrogen atom, okay? Yes, mm-hmm. we know that you need to deal with more complicated atom, but mm-hmm. it is such a nice, simple thing to do it. Mm-hmm. And in reality, we have tools that, that, that are not mature enough, especially in academia, I've been trying to promote what I call not PSL. PSL, unfortunately, it's industrial language. It's full of it's full of things. Part of the question is what will be the the clean logic that underlie a PSL and SVA, and I call it linear dynamic logic, where we just the addition of regular expressions to to right. linear time. Sure. And we don't have enough uh, kind of uh, mature tools out there that can uh, that people can use. I mean, there are lots of free tools for. LTL because it's simple to implement. We don't have such tool for LDL, and I'm trying to encourage people. Let's build a tool. Let's share them in the same way that, for example, I've many of my students benefited from a tool like Spot, mm-hmm. that uh, is a wonderful tool that uh, has been. You know, we need we need public tools that can provide infrastructure for for the academic community to to build on.
0: So now I understand why you're saying this, and I, actually I can testify this as a witness that every day I use SVA and there are lots of um, rather simple English language concepts that are not very easy to express with regular SVA uh, My recipe to the students I teach or work with engineers is to come up with um, You know registers and glue code and that helps to simplify the modeling so I say write it in English break it down into small phrases um, almost as if we were doing like a like a computer <laughs> parsing of the sentence. And and I can totally relate to what you said from a practical point of view. It's, you know, SVA LRM is, is humongous. There's so much stuff in SVA that makes it impossible for people to learn and digest. So I try and simplify it only to the very few operators that you just mentioned, the next and the past and so on. But at the end of the day, we have, as engineers, we have to model quite complex behaviors. You know, we've got to model things like ordering, alternate behavior, uh, going back arbitrarily in time, not necessarily knowing when. So unless we use this power of register based modeling where we trap non deterministic events, we can't actually reason about non determinism with just I mean we can, so, but it will be difficult to model it with SVA, very complicated.
1: I I think it's perfectly okay to expand it Part of, part of the methodology of formal verification is to build these what are called auxiliary models that, that certain, certain behavior, when you look what it is, you say, I'm trying to capture this behavior and I'm going to build a little reference model that talks about this behavior. Correct. Correct. What, what we need is, is for the tools to manage it in a, in a sound way. Mm-hmm. One of the things that sometimes, for example, when I was at Intel, we built a very good model checker. Mm-hmm. But it was not a verification system. Okay. It was called forecast. It was a good model check. Right. What I mean, it's not a verification system. Suppose you made an assumption. You had to check your assumption on the, about the environment. Then you have to check the assumption holds. So you have to keep track of the assumption. Correct. Where did you keep track of your assumption? You had a paper pad and you wrote, I made this assumption. Okay. Yeah. Make sure you, yeah. make sure, I need to make sure I discharge it. Hmm. So now, suppose you misplace your, your pad the assumption disappeared yeah
0: yeah
1: and in the verification system it will say no you did not verify it. you have a pending assumption correct 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 and and so what we need is the tools to be not just model checker it's not enough to have a model checking tool we need verification tools absolutely absolutely in fact
0: today's tools actually mm -hmm. uh, all of the all of the model checking tools property checking tools that we say they do have some ability to check for consistency of assumptions but yeah. we still recommend that the constraints are getting validated in simulation top-level test benches in the presence but, of the driving logic of the design. This is solving so, an engineering problem. not. not <laughs> so that's how we are solving this right now.
1: Yeah, so now you built you build a reference model. Correct. Did, did you? It's a model. It's a code. You wrote code. Is it the right code? How do we validate your reference model? Bring so the, the real point
0: stuff. Is, yeah, so bring the real so, stuff. Let it drive these, and those properties need to hold against the design so
1: yeah so so the point is that we need to think that's why i said what's kind of missing in our field is the is the verification engineering correct that partly will codify best practices or best correct. known method the pkms of the industry yes and the uh, and system that that actually force you to do that when you if you drop a reference model there yeah yeah you can yeah. you say, well, who signed up on that? Yeah. How do we know that this is the right yeah. reference model? Correct. If it's a very trivial reference model, yeah. if you build a two-bit a, a two-bit register, okay. What happens if it's a non-trivial? Something that capture non-terminism, capture all certain order of things. What happens then? How do we know that your reference model is correct? Because the point is, well, maybe you made a mistake there. Correct. In fact, we know today that the first place you're going to make a mistake is when you write properties down. Correct. Correct. And so there's a there's a whole area that has emerged and you, you find various papers on it become known as yeah. property engineering. Yes, correct. Okay. Just right. like if you think about in software engineering, yeah. there's yeah. a very important field called requirement engineering. Yeah, I call it proof engineering, Moshe. I always tell
0: people, if anything practically yeah. complicated we are verifying, you need to master proof engineering. And, one of, yeah. and all of these things you're talking right, right now are things that we discuss. And some of them we know how to do it, in finite time, or, or we could tell you in how, much, how many weeks we can do it. But abstraction, for example, is a classic thing. You know, we learned in our, in our early days of, of graduate studies that abstractions are, in general, safe. You know, anything you prove on the abstract model is going to hold in the, in the original model. The reality is very different. Abstractions can actually introduce um, the possibility that you end up verifying a design where you miss the bugs. Because if you abstract away too much, whether you're abstracting the data or the time, you're likely not to capture some real scenarios. So it's very important to understand that the abstraction we are doing is safe, and we are not missing some bugs. And So,
1: so, <laughs> so again, the question is, how is a sub- abstraction done? It abstraction has to be managed by the tool. Okay. Then you, put, then you, you say, you say safe, for example, yeah. free up this register, yeah. and you have to do it in the tool. Yeah. Then we can build the tool to make sure that this is the only way you do these things, are, are, all abstractions are sound. Correct. But if abstraction is to say, I will take the code hmm. and I will manually modify it to be more abstract, hmm. I will do, I will free the registers manually. Yeah. Then you immediately say, well, you could have made a mistake. The Correct. mistake would be just a typo. Correct. Correct. How do we know your abstractions are sound? That's Correct. why I said what we are missing is. Yeah. Is partly to to look at the whole chain and to say how do we make sure these are Absolutely. verification tools? Absolutely. There is there is a something that we kind of need to borrow from the people who do uh, who are more in the theorem, in the proof assistant world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And they have struggled with the with the with the with the concept, which is that how do we know? How can you trust yeah. if we have verified something? How can we trust it?
0: I like to see visible proofs. And in theorem provers, I can see them. <laughs> but in model checking, I don't.
1: I just see... No, but even if... But they have sometimes large proof. How? Why do I trust it? Yeah. You know, they are, yeah. they are complicated beasts. Right. Why yeah. do I trust it? Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: And the model has emerged there is that you have a small kernel mm-hmm. And a small kernel will have maybe a few hundreds or maybe a few thousands of lines. Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: And you, and the only way you gain trust there is by transparency. It's yeah. published. Mm-hmm. You hope that many people look at it and mm-hmm. they find bugs, and you say it is only as trustworthy as it's a you know it's a community. It's a social construct. Trustworthy in this case is a social construct, so to speak. But you try to make it as small as possible. And you try to make sure that above this kernel, everything Mm -hmm. is relative to the kernel. It's extended in a safe way. Everything is extended. So everything should be as safe, as trustworthy as the kernel. So what you're doing, you're taking the concept of trust and you're trying to reduce it to say, I want to have blind trust as little as possible. Correct. One of the things that uh, I think that, you know, you look back and you look at uh, Tony Hall's... Mm -hmm. uh, 1969 paper and which was a visionary paper and inspired for many of us now for more than 50 years but he says well if we can reduce everything to into formal we can trust it as mathematics
0: mm-hmm.
1: but it brings the whole question is how much do we trust mathematics and, uh, and mathematicians are kind of struggling with this issue what do you trust if you have a very 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 complicated proof can you trust it how do what how, the notion of trust and then trust Trust is a, is a social construct,
0: <laughs>
1: okay? We need to understand. There is no, God does not come and give you a certificate. There is no absolute okay? truth. Hmm. The, you know, in this hmm. case, it's a, it's a social, it's a, it's a human process to arrive at hmm. trust, hmm. okay? How do we get there? It makes sense to discuss in mathematics how do you get trust. It makes sense to discuss in, in, in formally verified proof what does trust mean? How, how much do, you, do we trust it? And it's good to have this piece conversation mm-hmm. because the answer would be that, you know, we will at some point have a system that's formally verified yeah, and then disaster happens.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, because, and, and, because and actually, I tell people all the time, it's not a panacea. Formal is only as good as the weakest link. And the weakest link is all of these things, you know, abstraction if you don't do it well, yeah. assumptions that, that don't hold on the system, mistakes you make in the glue code or properties.
1: <laughs> it's... So so one of the things is to try to understand the full process to talk about but where can how can mistakes leak in? Where, where are the points where mistakes would leak in? And how do we how do we try to make sure how do we try to plug as many leaks as possible? Absolutely. Okay? Absolutely. And that's you know I mean that's it's just you have to be very very pragmatic. How can mistakes leak in and contaminate. You know what we have learned from number with the virus, right? You know people all the time to outsmart this virus, and so far the virus has been outsmarting us. <laughs> it finds way to leak in. Yes, the biological so one it, as
0: well, and the computer one as well, both.
1: <laughs> yeah. So we have to look at we we have to think we can need to, we need to think of this this error are pernicious, and they are looking always for the weakest link, for the smallest hole, and all we can do is find one hole at a time and try to plug them. And leave as much to as little to you know. Whenever human makes human steps, that's where errors creep in. We are the least reliable part of the process.
0: Absolutely. And that's
1: why we need to make sure if we if we do if we do abstraction by hand, it cannot be trusted.
0: Yes, absolutely. And in fact, I'll I'll tell you that for most practical large scale verification, when we do abstraction, the hardest thing is to make sure we don't actually make mistakes and don't leave these leaks, as you said. Hey, so if you guys are enjoying this uh, chat today, uh, then I'm certainly enjoying a lot. We would like to bring you back next week to carry on this podcast. And we will have Moshe here right in front of me. And I would like to talk to him about more exciting topics like machine learning, AI, and logic. So for now, friends, I would like to wish you a good time, and we will be back next week.